0: Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse Into The Future. My name is Rigas Sadzilakos, and in this podcast series we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, I talk to the Co-Chairs of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of International Security, Dr. Shirley Ann Jackson, President of the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and Espen Barth Eide, Member of the Norwegian Parliament. Espen, if I could start with you, Uh, what is the current scene in international security? What are the big trends and challenges uh, that the world of international security is is facing right now?
1: It's a complicated picture. Uh, We see on the one hand, we see uh, many uh, cases of upheaval and uh, local unrest all over the world. But at the same time, we we have seen, as the forum has been pointing to for a long time, the return of strategic competition, meaning that uh, a number of great power, regional and global great powers, are competing over influence. And these two trends intersect. So when we have a war in Syria, it's not only about Syrians, but it's also about the bigger picture of Iran versus the Gulf, uh, Russia versus the West, and so on, all comes into these local conflicts. So we have sort of two layers, one which is the chaotic level of, uh, of uh, in, peri- in the periphery of the system and then we have the competition at the core of the system at the same time and that means that it is probably less, uh, uh, it, it's more difficult than ever before actually to predict what's going to happen in the near future because we neither have uh, unity at the core, the, the United Nations Security Council, the great powers nor do we have the stability that we'd like around in these uh, complicated places.
0: And. What would be a a realistic scenario based on on these trends that could be positive and what could be a negative scenario in the the next 10 to 15 years,
2: Well, in in many ways, uh, the negative scenario links to what Espen talks about. But I kind of call it the the clash of demographics because if you look at uh, many parts of the developing world, you have young populations. Uh, By 2030, the average age in Africa will be about 21 whereas in Europe, 45, in the US, 40, but that could change with our immigration policy. Having said that, if you have young, uneducated people with limited possibilities, you have a formula for unrest. And and that is what you actually see uh, in many parts of the world. Ironically, on the other side, when you have an older population, but you have the advent of uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution technologies, You have actual displacement of people whose skills may not be relevant and you have the increasing worry of people as they see that happening. They also look at globalization as an underlying threat and that leads to its own kind of unrest that we've seen manifested in the nationalism in Europe, in the U.S. and et cetera. So how does that create uh, a problem? It creates a problem because you end up with displaced persons uh, who could be refugees because of conflict in areas that are characterized by limited possibilities, not to mention uh, governance issues and so forth. You even have people fleeing disease because of the conditions. But then they go to areas that they feel are more developed. But those are the very areas where people feel displaced by technology and are worried about their own futures. And so you end up with a, a clash that we discuss as a clash of cultures, but I think of it as a clash of demographics. And, and I think that is the real trigger point. On the other hand, you could say, well, what could be positive in all of that? And, and there, there are two things I would say. One, that societies need vitality. And if they are aging, there is the possibility of absorbing uh, immigrants in the US historically has done that, uh, who bring new ideas, fresh ideas. And actually, if you look at a lot of the technological innovations in the US that have come out of the US since World War II, uh, many of them were driven by uh, immigrants. And those immigrants, actually, a number of them were fleeing uh, Hitler and World War II. And so there are lessons, I think, we can take from that that could have uh, Positive implications if managed the right way
0: tell us a bit more about these technologies now We're talking about the fourth industrial revolution Um, What are some of the opportunities that these technologies can bring in our uh, fight for a stable international security scene? Well
2: many people are under duress they're under duress because of uh, climate change they're under duress because of Conflict but conflict can lead to uh, other effects uh, disease you have people who uh, are stunted in their uh, physiological development. So these technologies, let's stay with for the moment in the um, bio arena, uh, have the possibility of uh, very massively improving agriculture, which might have to occur under different climatic conditions or with more limited space for agricultural development. And so the kinds of breakthroughs that people are making Uh, even though people react to GMOs and so forth. uh, Out of that it's coming uh, understanding about new ways to to, uh, enrich soil uh, more productive, to get more productivity. Another has to do with uh, bioengineered pharmaceuticals so that one has the ability to target diseases. The flu is one. There is no universal flu vaccine. Uh, You have things like Ebola. And so the historical ways of developing uh, drugs, of pharmaceuticals, is in many ways uh, kind of old. And so bioengineered heparin is something that actually was developed at my university. But it came out of the concern about contaminated heparin that came out of China. So every technology sits on a knife edge. And so it can be used for ill. And from an international security perspective, we worry about that.
0: But it can always be used for good. So, Espen, what are some, some of the worries you have
1: about the, these technologies? Yes, I will answer that. I just want to say that there's a lot of opportunity in all of this. For instance, there's the possibility that technology can help us to arrive at the, the Paris climate goals easier because of the advent of new renewables are getting much cheaper, new means of transport, new means of production, and so on. But on the more worrying side, we're seeing now the potential for weaponization of these new technologies the weaponization of bio uh, but also uh, with the advent of uh, autonomy drones is what people think about but generally autonomous vehicles of all sorts you know water in the water uh, on land in air face recognition big data all can be combined to make new and uh, very precise uh, weapon system to against which we so far have little defense Um, and um, combining this with the whole cyber scene uh, you may see the rise of other actors who can actually have a significant security impact i mean a negative one uh, and challenging even the most powerful states in a way that we haven't seen before. So one of the things our council have been looking at from the beginning is the potential for what I call weaponization of technology that has not been developed with a military goal, but rather you know somewhere in the process somebody saw as an opportunity to, to use in order to create havoc on a, on a large scale. And some of this is already with us.
2: I mean, you can use drones to deliver bombs. You can use 3D printing to manufacture grenade launchers. People are concerned that the CRISPR gene editing technology can be used to uh, weaponize uh, pathogens, Uh, even using cyber to uh, disable cyber physical systems. All of these things are worries, but embedded in every worry is also a potential solution and opportunity. The uh, autonomous drones, for instance, can also be programmed in ways where they can't do certain things. If you worry about uh, CRISPR gene editing, it has huge opportunity to cure disease and to correct genetic defects. 3D printing uh, can revolutionize manufacturing and create more what you might think of as glocalization of manufacturing, where things can be done in situ but play into a global market. And cyber-physical systems are ones that are vulnerable because people haven't thought about them as much as they should relative to security but you know there is that uh, possibility and having cyber physical controls also allows you to get more productivity out of uh, uh, different kinds of control systems and manufacturing Processes.
1: And I'd like to mention in this context that there is an important uh, conversation ongoing at the United Nations about whether there should be some rules governing what we call lethal autonomous weapon systems, which is not in any way to stop the development of advanced new weapon systems, which will happen anyway, but, but whether there should be certain norms to put certain limits on uh, how much autonomy you can give to an algorithm. You know, Is it okay? if a machine takes the final kill decision, as the military would say, or should there always be uh, what is rare to a man in the loop or a woman in the loop for that sake. Uh, and, uh, and this is an ongoing discussion. Um, it's theoretically possible that the world will be able to come up with norms and rules about this before the technology is fully here, but the jury is out. And uh, we have been actively engaging with this discussion because we think it's uh, another arena where you need a public-private uh, decision. The decision makers, are aware of there being a problem, but uh, we do not necessarily think they always understand the uh, the depth of the problem.
2: I think there's a a, a question of the development of a a, a new security framework, which is in, in, inherently uh, multinational and multilateral. Because if you think of cyber-physical systems and their destruction um, through cyber means, if those systems were destroyed by kinetic weapons. That would be considered a, a, an act of war or certainly high aggression. And, and when I talk about then new uh, rules of, of what is war, which plays into this question of multilateralism and, and global norms, I think we have to have those conversations. And that's why the kind of uh, public-private uh, discussions and partnerships that espen speaks of are so important and and that's why frankly the world economic forum is important and it's important that we have those discussions here
1: and, and exactly and i think um, what what we still need to grasp is that if a modern advanced state is coming under attack in quotation mark from another advanced state or another advanced actor today it's unlikely to start in the military domain you know the least probable action will be uh, Missiles and fighter jets uh, and, and tanks entering your territory, which would be a classical invitation to war. Uh, it will be the destruction of your information systems, your water supply, your electricity grids, and so on. And initially, probably from cyber attack, and um, and then uh, w- w- that challenges the the solid. And sound good distinction that we used to have between times of peace and times of war and the rules of peace and the rules of war. Because when, when are you transiting then uh, from uh, norma- normality into the exceptional state of, of war and conflict? And this is really difficult to get around because what will be attacked will typically be in the, at least partly in the private domain, it's not necessarily a, a public service. But it's still something, I mean, if you nobody gets access to their bank accounts, that's a severe disruption of activity. Uh, but it's not clear if it is a traditional military attack that warrants a, a military response. Right?
2: That's because military responses link to kinetic weapons. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why I think people are struggling uh, so much. But here's another subtle but pernicious kind of security uh, concern. And that really has to do with something that comes out of what's been around for a long time, which one might call propaganda, but what uh, new media and new communications networks allow are ways to uh, be disruptive by really being much more uh, penetrating uh, and influencing things like uh, democratic elections and creating a kind of populism by having people fed information Uh, that is meant to steer them in a certain direction and therefore bringing internal clashes and disruptions within a country. And so those kinds of things we actually see and then those things can then be followed by and even mask the kind of cyber disruptions that Espen was speaking about. And so these things are very pernicious.
1: And these things uh, that Julian speaks about are happening now. This is not the theoretical option for the future. It is happening. And it's, it's placed into an area where something, in my view, very dramatic has happened, which is the, the, the leveling out of the traditional difference between reading a serious newspaper or watching a serious TV station and gossip. Today, uh, the, the social media has led to some kind of leveling. So somebody would say, I read X in the New York Times, and, so, and the other uh, person says, well, on Twitter I saw something opposite, and I believe in this particular Twitter account, because I decided to. And, and that means that there we are entering into what some people refer to as post-truth uh, politics or a post-truth world. And, and it's really serious. Um, I think many of us thought with the advent of the internet and social media and so on, that this was... a an enlightenment and democratization process because now everybody in principle could get access to all kinds of information, which is true Uh, in most countries, if they are not under severe state control, you can. But it turns out that people tend to go for their own echo chamber, to listen to confirmations of what they already think. So rather than having a uh, a globalized, universal understanding of things where we, we sort of balance different views, we, we get confirmed in inside our little silo. And that, again, of course, uh, fuels uh, both the populism and, and um, uh, parochialism that we see in many countries now emerging and the possibility for doing exactly what Julian said, which is to, uh, you know, advanced actors can enter this field and manipulate very easily. Right, and so it
2: channels people. But, but people live in their own worlds. And I, I don't think we understand totally how people live in social media. Uh, because even as we're all connected, it creates its own kind of disconnectedness. Because people do have reinforcing echo chambers. And, and I think that's something that we need to talk about more. Now, I, I'm actually a, a university president. I was in the government and in a sensitive area, in the nuclear area. But as a university president, I think we have to think through the cognitive effects of social media and how it actually can play into uh, creating
0: dangerous scenarios. Uh, I have a question, you know a lot of the, the examples that you, you mentioned and the trends that you mentioned. It seems to me like the private sector is suddenly uh, an important player in international security concerns. How aware is the, par- the private sector that they play this role? May I? I think two two things. One,
2: the private sector is very important because in many countries the the key infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector. The innovations are coming out of the private sector and those are the things that are driving us. I think there are things that have happened such as the uh, apparent implication of Facebook in even the election in the US but in other places where you now have technology leaders who are very concerned and, and they're thinking very hard about you know, what they can do to uh, mitigate those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, so I, I agree. I think there's um, a growing recognition in the private sector that they're part of this. And uh, I think all, overall, actually, in this area and other areas that many people in the private sector used to think that uh, let's just assume that uh, my government or states among them uh, solve these issues and I will go, go, go on with my business. Now they're eventually waking up to the reality that the governments are not always neither able, capable, or maybe even willing to deal properly with these issues. So there is no alternative to try to find some kind of normative role also, and a practical role of, uh, of the private sector in, in many of these questions. And I think that's why this conversation that we're having, uh, led by our Council on Future International Security, is so important, because it is, does exactly that. It raises... The particular set of security issues that rests in the intersection between the public and the private, uh, and the global and the local, and um, and try to um, give create a meaningful conversation that hopefully can lead to some outcomes in the long run.
2: And then, in the uh, building on those conversations, uh, our council is actually developing scenarios in terms of uh, geopolitical alignments, uh, a number of the issues we've mentioned, and the pressure points uh, that can affect. Uh, international security and actually developing uh, gaming exercises to be able to look at the influences of various factors which uh, can be helpful to uh, decision makers and policy makers.
1: And I also want, because in, in not, not to create the impression that we are, uh, we're all on the gloomy side here, we've also witnessed it, just been witnessing a, a Davos where uh, a, a large number of global leaders have been speaking very uh, energetically about uh, the global common good and the need to find common answers to many of our world's most pressing questions and that we need institutions and norms and we need to reform and modernize them. Uh, so, the, so there is also a willingness out there and I, I, I find that the conversation these political leaders have with the sort of top leaders of the private world uh, is increasingly meaningful in creating such a common understanding of where the challenges lie.
2: I also think that it is interesting but important that the uh, fourth industrial revolution has become uh, the dominant part of the conversation because so much of what powers and animates the corporate world, the business world, are these new technologies because they create a lot of opportunity to do important things and to create great wealth for individuals and for, for nations. But as we've been talking about, they link to these larger Challenges. So what that does is it brings together the concerns of policymakers and government leaders, of business leaders, and the technology sector, and that's a conversation that has to be linked, because that's actually what connects us globally.
1: And uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada the other day said that I think it was a very well coined phrase. It was something like, "Change is happening faster than ever before." but slower than it ever will, which was an illustration that, you know, there is an accelerating rate of change, an endless opportunity. There's so much positive opportunity in all of this. But this technological revolution promises to be even more disruptive than the previous ones. And all technological or industrial revolution have changed the world. So this will also change the world. The question is, can we grasp it in time to try to put a direction on this that uh, improves uh, togetherness on the planet and, and, and create some kind of common good for mankind.
0: So if you were to leave a quick message to the global decision community in Davos, what would it be, Shirlian? That because of the pace of change in, in the face of the
2: fourth industrial revolution and, and because of our interconnectedness and therefore interdependence, one has to take a more systemic perspective about risk and to look at those kinds of intersections that can lead to cascading consequences. So that's point A. Point B then is that necessarily drives the need uh, for uh, a kind of multilateralism, but a discussion that has to occur across nations, but it has to uh, occur across groups and between the public and the private and the academic sectors.
1: um, uh, anticipate the future, don't be content, with just reacting to change.
0: But the future is just that, it's the future. Thank you both very much for your time, this was really interesting. I hope that the message of you both and the Council gets heard. That was Dr. Shirley Ann Jackson and Espen Barth Eide, coaches of the Global Future Council on International Security. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse Into The Future.